Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, May the 14th, 2023. An important Sunday in, uh, in Europe. Uh, particularly when it comes to the future of democracy. It's the election in Turkey, uh, according to the New York Times, that features the Turkish election on its front page in lots of different contexts. Um, Erdogan faces a tough re-election fight. So far, so good in terms of uh, at least uh, the, the absence of violence. For many, including friends of this show, like uh, Eche. Temel Kuren, who had an interesting piece this week in The Guardian. Turkey's choice couldn't be starker. More cruelty under Erdogan or the return of justice and hope. That uh, Manichaean view, I think, uh, is probably reflected on the right, too, in terms of whether or not uh, Erdogan's critics are going uh, to replace him. The interesting question, in some ways, is what happens if uh, Erdogan is replaced. We have another election coming up uh, in um, in uh, in Poland in October, a parliamentary election. And there's an interesting piece by an old friend of the show, Michał Kizalowski and Anna Wojcik, The Authoritarian Hangover, uh, which they've just had published. It's part of uh, a, a piece from their new book, um, Let's Agree on Poland. And the question is, what happens if the opposition wins? What exactly is the authoritarian hangover and what should happen in places like Turkey and Poland and perhaps in the United States if the electors reject authoritarianism? The answer is more complicated sometimes than it seems. Maciej Kizalowski is joining us. He's an old friend of the show from uh, Warsaw. Maciej, um, do you, you may not, I'm not sure if you're an expert on Turkey, but do you share Eche Timokuran's take on this Manichaean choice for Turkish electors or for that matter for Polish electors in, uh, in, in October? Uh, hi, Andrew. Uh, I, I, I do think that Turkey and Poland are as close and as similar as two separate distinctly. Both have a very similar uh, social mix where opposition, the progressive opposition, is very uh, geographical uh, in some areas, and then Erdogan conservative religious um, authoritarian movement in others. And it's very, very similar in Poland. And it, perhaps it's because of common history, common geography, both countries lie kind of at the crossroads of East and West and fre frequently can't decide whether they want to join the West or join the East or, or look for something in between. So you note in your piece with Anna that um, uh, this, this piece, Authoritarian Hangover, uh, that the elections are similar. Are the voters viewing these elections in similar terms? Is it really a referendum on authoritarianism? Yes, very much so. And, and in both cases, because the effects of authoritarianism, which we know, compar comparative scholars know from other cases, but 
voters not always know that authoritarianism does lead to policy disasters because it doesn't have in, in, inherent checks and balances in the system. Uh, in uh, both countries, there is inflation. Uh, it's much higher in uh, Turkey, but it is very high in, in Poland. Uh, in both countries, you have inflation for similar reasons, which is lack of sufficient independence of uh, the two respective central banks. Um, uh, Turkey, of course, went through um, this earthquake, which um, unearthed some stunning incompetency and corruption of Erdogan regime. Uh, and Poland obviously struggles with the consequences of uh, Putin's But it's a, it's a broader issue, um, Miche, in terms of this comparison. You note in your piece that there may be a need for what you call reconciliation. You know, the standard view is the Democrats, the critics of Erzegan or of Kaczynski in, and, and, and the Law and Justice Party in Poland, they're the bad guys. The good guys are their critics. And when the bad, when the good, when the bad guys are voted out of power, everything will get back to normal. Your, your take is a little bit more complicated and I think sophisticated. W what is the role of reconciliation if indeed the authoritarians are voted out of office? So, as I said, in both countries, about half of the electorate supports the authoritarian regime. It's clear what the regime is about and still about one into Turks and one into Poles uh, support that, uh, those regimes. Um, so let's say we win by, you know, a narrow margin, just like Joe Biden won by a narrow right. margin. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't want to throw the United States in as a, another spanner into the works here, but it's a very similar situation in the U.S. too. The, the conservative exactly. alliance built around what many see as neo-authoritarianism is also dividing the country fairly equally between uh, Democrats and Republicans. So America, Poland, Turkey, and of course we could Brazil. throw in Brazil, um, exactly. uh, Hungary, of course, which is the model, even Russia. So, 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 so what do we need to learn from here in terms of reconciliation? How are we going to stop having these apocalyptic elections or elections that exactly. are at least seen in apocalyptic terms? This is exactly the key of the issue. So let's, let's say we win by a narrow margin. What next? Are we going to? And we, winning? of course, Mache being the opponent. I am. Of the I least, am a progressive. Uh, law and justice. I, you know, I don't hide that I am a progressive. I work for uh, George Soros's Central European University, that's in Vienna, where I am formerly in Budapest, where I am a professor. So, of course, I am saying we because we don't need to be overly politically correct here. And uh, yes, so we win. What's, what's the plan? Are we going to win every next election? Because every uh, next election will be this, as you uh, beautifully describe it, cataclysmic election, where if the other side wins, we are back in authoritarian uh, regime with no freedom, with no uh, independent judiciary, with no free media. We can't go on like this. So we are saying in our new book, which I co-edited with um, Professor Wojciuk, but also with 20 uh, for other um, uh, uh, scholars, uh, intellectuals, from very progressive to very conservative in Poland. It's uh, now a bestseller of one of the top 
Polish uh, publishing houses. It, it launched on, on Thursday. Uh, and we are saying we can't go on like that. We need to find a common set of rules, we meaning progressives and conservatives, that are going to be tolerable for both sides, even though on policy issues we vehemently continue to disagree. We can't be confusing rules of the game and the game itself. In the game, we are uh, adversaries, political adversaries, and we need to fight vigorously, and I'm all for progressive fighting vigorously, in constitutional arrangements, in setting rules of the game, we must agree we, on a set of rules. And we are proposing a set of rules for Poland, which is in a funny way uh, uh, related to the experience of your country, United States, yeah. um, uh, because it is based on the idea of far-reaching decentralization of the most controversial issues like abortion or the status of um, same-sex relations, which are the hot, topic in hot topics in Poland. And rather than centralizing them, for example, through uh, the um, uh, decisions of the, of, of, of the Supreme Court, we believe it will be better also for human rights because human rights are not advanced when we have authoritarian regimes and where is, there is no stability, to take the pressure of the center and return some of those issues to, um, uh, to, to, to our regions, which are, of course, much smaller. Right. So, so Michele, I, I think that the, um, a sizable country. the response of some progressives and probably conservatives would be, well, th these are the people who have broken the rules. Why should we conform with them? We, we played by the rules in democracy, the opponents of Trump. He's the one who claims yeah. that the system's broken and rotten and corrupt. We prove it isn't. Why should we... What's the need for reconciliation? I'm assuming there's a similar kind of conversation going on in, in, in Poland. Why, why the need to talk to people who lie? Uh, because in a way, reconciliation implies that both sides are lying and there's a need for this third way. How would you respond to that? Oh, yes, absolutely. There is a lot of criticism of our book uh, from, from, from that angle, especially from progressives. My response is simple. You like you don't choose your compatriots like you don't choose your family members. So it's not about moral equivalency. Let's let's keep morals and our moral commitments out of this. We need to have a system in which no matter which side uh, wins, accepts the rules of the game. Otherwise, we simply do not have rules of the game. You can't have a game in on any game. You, you wouldn't be able to, you know, have a sports game if, if the two teams didn't agree on basic rules and they can hate each other vehemently and, and uh, uh, on, on many grounds. Yes. Um, so that's my uh, uh, that's my response. Realistically, there is no other way. Uh, as long as those uh, right-wing uh, conservative populists attract so much public support that we can't create a stable system without them, uh, we need to accommodate, try to accommodate some of their uh, some of their grievances. There is just no other way at the level of right. rules. So, of so, so, so in terms of America, there's two responses. Again, firstly, if you accept 
the need for reconciliation. You're acknowledging that Trump may have a point in claiming the last election was fixed. And the second point is, which comes to my mind, and, and probably critics of Biden might might share this concern. How are you ever going to Trump? How are you ever going to trust these people? Trump, in particular, I'm not sure how equivalent the Law and Justice Party is in Poland, but he's proven himself to be untrustworthy on so many fronts. He seems to lie continuously. So how would we ever trust him? What happens if he agrees? Well, okay, let's make sure that this election is fair, and then he loses it again, and then claims that the system's rigged. Uh, so actually, both countries are again very similar because both parties are built around those lies, just like the uh, uh, rigged election lie. Po Polish uh, Law and Justice Party has a lie about the um, tragic death of the um, brother of the, yeah, of the party uh, in 2010. The, uh, and uh, yeah. supposedly, uh, what, he crashed in, in Russia, very complicated, controversial. Yes, well, isn't it the same with the big lie in, in your country? It is always very complicated. And our argument in this Project Syndicate piece that you mentioned uh, is that actually those lies are more performative acts. Um, yeah. When, when you actually, uh, they, they are the consequences of the fact that a large percentage of electorate... Uh, symbolic, as you say, performative or symbolic. Yeah, they are very symbolic. And, and, and the root cause is that, that the, uh, there is a sizable portion of the electorate in your country and mine, which simply doesn't believe that the system works for them anymore. So they are trying to create a joint experience of performatively rejecting this system. And these are the big lies. If we, our argument is if we create some new rules that are going to be a little more aligned with conservative compatriots are mm, looking for in a state, um, then there would be no need for those big lies because people will simply be more comfortable in their own country. We, 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 we see those lies as symptoms of a, of a deeper disease. Right. You, and, and what was interesting in the piece and in the book, um, you, you give the example in Poland of your, uh, General... Uh, Jaruzelski, who was a figure ultimately uh, of reconciliation in Poland after the Soviet colonization of the country. What can we learn from Jaruzelski and the Polish experience of Jaruzelski and solidarity and the ultimate relatively peaceful transition from communism to democracy? How can Poland be a model of reconciliation in an age where, oddly enough, we seem to have returned to um, the the darkness of of the communist period in in a weird surreal way. Yes, uh, right wing nationalism replaced uh, Soviet communists in kind of Cold War two point and 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 it is true that not only Poland, many countries in late twentieth century, the so called third wave wave nations actually were what we call cooperative transitions. So ultimately, the, the losing authoritarian political power accepted the new rules of the game. And we're saying work hard to make those new transitions to democracy more cooperative. Because currently, you have a situation like in the US where um, 
Trump eventually, albeit with uh, um, horrific violence, um, did give uh, up power, but still does not want to cooperate with, uh, with, 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 the, with the democratic system and acknowledge democratic rules of the game. You can uh, see um, General Jaruzelski's Poland 1989 as a, as a different story. The same was with Chile and Augusto Pinochet, who uh, not, it's not that those authoritarians left happily. Yes, I mean, they were very, um, they, they held lots of grudges and, and tried everything they could to stay in power. But once they were defeated, they, they, they had motivation to cooperate with the new Is system. there a different, I, I take the point, and it's a really interesting point, Miche, but as you note in your piece, these, there are real issues behind this. There's the issue of people being left behind, of coal-based economics, very similar in West Virginia in the United States and much in the Polish economy. Huge issues of the depoliticization of schools. Um, and, and then you noted abortion uh, rights in, in America and Poland. These are real issues. Uh, Jaruzelski was perhaps dealing with more symbolic ones. But how do we get beyond this endless disagreement on globalization um, and a nostalgia for a past that didn't exist. How can reconciliation help with that? Because the two worlds, their reading of history is entirely foreign. How can you reconcile those two ontologies? That's such a fantastic point. Uh, uh, indeed, if you think about it, Communism was horrible, but it was, you know, it was in, in, in essence a rationalist somewhat progressive ideology, at least in theory, and thereby there were not that many basic foundational issues that divide. Right, nobody divide believed it. it, not even the communists, not even the Russians, and, so everyone was yeah, kind yeah, of no, in but, agreement. But, but at least they proclaimed certain set of rationalist values, while of course the problem with our conservative religious compatriots is that they reject much of what we, for example, take as human rights, yes, let's say LGBT, uh, uh, rights. Uh, this is a good example of, of uh, women's right to choose. Um, so, of course, the, the situation conceptually and, and constitutionally is much more difficult. And that's why our proposal, which is to um, decentralize everything that is uh, that we possibly can decentralize without um, you know, impossible moral costs. Uh, 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 so, let, so, okay, way. so I take the point, and decentralization is some another theme we've talked about a lot on the show. I've also dealt with it on my other show, How to Fix and, Democracy. And usually associated with conservatives. Right, but how do you, right, so fair state rights, but how do you decentralize an issue like, say, abortion rights, or whether or not you should shut the coal mines? So, um, with abortion rights, uh, Australia is a good example. Australia never had uh, federal level abortion law. And between late 90s and late 2010s, all states, all Australian states, decided to liberalize abortion state by state. The last one was in 2017. Um, and this didn't create so much 
conservative backlash than, let's say, Roe versus Wade, which created, you know, moral majority, federalist society. All of this was a backlash. And now what you are seeing, the problem with this centralized approach that your country took and progressives, because your ideas are contagious. So a lot of progressives started to use the same playbook after seeing how you dealt with those issues. And, and, and the problem with this is that it creates tremendous backlash. And now what you are seeing is not conservatives are not coming and just decentralizing it. They are centralizing their policy agenda. They are centralizing crazy gun laws, which are which need to be ab- abided by even liberal states. But if everything, are central- you know, I take your point, uh, Mache, but if let's say, everything gets decentralized. And in Warsaw, mm-hmm. like in New York or San Francisco, it's easy to get an abortion and hard to get a gun and the reverse in the provinces. At what point does a country like Poland or the United States itself become um, an invention, something that doesn't really exist? Because the world of Warsaw and the world of New York and the world of Eastern Galicia and the world of West Virginia are just entirely foreign with one another. And in fact, Warsaw and New York have much more in common than the geographical hinterland. So in our proposal, also learning from your um, example and some of the mistakes of American system, which couldn't be designed, uh, you know, from scratch in one go, but emerge over centuries, it's always more difficult to create a, a good system. So there is a certain second mover advantage of a country like mine, uh, we are saying you know, some issues uh, should be, stay centralized. We should centralize, for example, the energy issue, as you mentioned, coal mines, because uh, we, we, this is a global problem. This is not a local problem. We need to keep centralizing security. We don't want, for example, to go into a federal model when each uh, region uh, has its own police and its own court system because, or its own uh, ability to set its own election rules and maybe exclude a large segment of population from voting. So rules of the game would stay centralized, but certain policies that can that, that, that are not global um, actually will get decentralized. It's, a, it's, an, it's an original mix, as you probably saw. There are some noted uh, uh, constitutional lawyers from, including American ones, who, who found the idea very innovative because the, 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 the whole point is not to decentralize everything. In, in many ways, because, for example, issues like climate change must get more and more centralized, we should try even harder to identify those issues which can be well, but then, uh, let's but say but school then, uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia would push back on this why why should why should the coal mining issue in West Virginia be nationalized or even internationalized and not abortion it depends on where your interests and agenda are how are you get ever going to get agreement on this well because one is a completely public good, meaning uh, uh, it affects every person on on planet Earth, whether we have disastrous climate change. And the other affects, of course, it, it does affect w- women and other people who uh, you know, are pregnant in a given community, uh, but they do not affect, for example, 
and countries, yes? Uh, so there is, a, there is an objective difference between climate change and abortion or teaching uh, critical theory in... Um, uh, I happen to support progressive side of those issues, but there is still just an objective difference between things where, uh, you know, the effects are felt globally and things which are affecting mostly one community. And then, uh, you know, the question is, if we failed to convince our conservative compatriots to our ideas, progressive ideas, to let's say, call it progressive consensus um, for many, many decades, uh, is trying to force uh, those ideas top down um, those 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 less global ideas those in, on those gl less global issues top down uh, the, the most effective way to uh, to advance progressive causes um, especially if you factor in the possibility of tremendous conservative backlash that yeah, it's, it's really it's, it's it's a fascinating um it's it's a fascinating way of thinking, uh, Miche. You you've been on the show before talking about uh, Ukraine. Uh, mm -hmm. You were on last year about the West moral failure, also warning about possible nuclear apocalypse. Mm -hmm. You're of course on the border there. When I was looking at um, he uh, headlines about Poland today, it's full of. Uh, the detection of objects, Polish uh, detection of objects in its airspace that flew from the east. It could have almost been invented by a satirical short story writer. Hunt for suspected spy balloon as mystery object flies into Polish airspace from the east. We know what that mystery object is. Of course, it's Putinism and authoritarianism. To what extent is the Ukrainian war bound up in this? And if this can get resolved, which in a military sense, seem to encapsulate the struggle between authoritarianism and democracy, how can the issues of Ukraine and these bigger political issues, how are they connected? And how might the defeat of Putin and Putinism help reconciliation in places like Poland and Turkey and the United States? Or theoretically, I guess, hinder it. I mean, is, is Russia ultimately no different is Putin just another version of Kaczynski or Trump or Erdogan or Orban? Yeah, well, uh, a more advanced version, uh, also in terms of tenure, length of tenure, and and those systems deteriorate and they they become more and more brutal and more and more corrupt. So, of course, Putin uh, eight years into his rule was not Putin today. Some people were. Still looking deep in his eyes and and looking and seeing his soul, um, you know, a few years into his reign. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so of course, um, if we defeat Putin um, without you know, some complete catastrophe like nuclear war or or complete collapse of of of, of social cohesion in Western Europe, which is strained because of the impacts of the war and we need to take this into account. I've been saying it and writing about it that, that we, we, we need to also understand we are resilient but how resilient we are if, if, if we let uh, authoritarians to win in Western Europe because people are so um, uh, fed up with high prices and high cost of living 
then the, the victory may be Pyrrhic one. But assuming none of this happens, for a country like Poland, there will be tremendous resp- responsibility to be uh, kind of a, the face of the West in reconstruction of Ukraine. We, we, we share the critical border and, and we've been a staunch ally, not only at the level of the, of the government, of the right-wing government, but most importantly at the level of ordinary citizens. Um, so, so, so that will, of course, create this common cause uh, which you are looking for. Yes, you ask me what's what's left. I actually, and we in the in the book we argue there is so much that's left after all those very important. I am not denigrating topics like you know school curricula or abortion, but there are so many other issues which get neglected because we are fighting on, on those issues. Worse yet, they get into the vortex of this, of this polarization and s- suddenly things like, you know, that Russia is a dangerous country, which was a consensus in your country, for suddenly becomes contentious. So that's another cost of this constant polarization and, right. and, Trump and political recently, warfare. Uh, you know, Trump's... Yeah position on Ukraine, which is essentially his non-involvement, is increasingly becoming certainly, if not a consent, uh, consensual, um, acceptable, credible, not beyond exactly. the anymore. And, and so, and that is happening in the more centralized system, not in the system we envisioned, um, certainly in Poland, but, but there is, as I say, a lot of attempts to, cent- to centralize, uh, centrally um, predetermined outcomes, both on left and right. Now the right has the Supreme Court to do this. Um, and in, in this system, you were saying, oh, if we decentralize, nothing is in common. Well, I would argue if we continue to have this logic of mutual occupation and mutual threat, then we will end up with nothing in common because we will be feeling each other so much in these centralized systems then that, that, that everything will be viewed with suspicion. There will be no area where we can say, okay, let's agree with conservatives. And this would be rational. If, if, if the conservatives can really harm, you know, my, my kids in school, uh, you know, my, my life partners, then, uh, then it's... It, yeah, maybe reason to feel Finally, um, is there anything beyond the pale here? Might oh, we agree oh. that... You can't reconcile over violence. I mean, the especially on the conservative side, yes. the extremes are fetishists of one kind of violence or another. Is there is there some Absolutely. stuff that is non-negotiable where there exactly. is no potential for reconciliation? Yes. And this is the, the key trade-off that we need to make explicit. Instead of imagining a world where everybody is progressive like us, we need to be very, very honest with ourselves. On these things, we vehemently disagree. We hate conservative politics, but we are not going to risk the country for those issues. And on those other issues, we, we go to war, if need be, like you did, with, the, with, with, of course, with the civil war in the 19th century. That was the non-negotiable issues. And there are issues like this. And we need to answer ourselves, what are they? and what is possible to put on the table.